Good morning. Today's passage comes from 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you all. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, then I'd love to meet you. And if we have met, good to see you. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Uh, God, first this morning, I just want to thank you for your word. I thank you that it's dependable, that it's trustworthy and true. And my prayer for us this morning, God, is that the truth of your word and what it reveals about you and what it reveals about your people, God, that you would bring that to bear on this group of people this morning and on me. God, would your spirit speak to somebody here today? Uh, Would you move, God, and sanctify us, make us your holy and set-apart people? Pray that we would, only by your spirit, um, leave here with a deeper knowledge and admiration of who you are in this this amazing story that we're about to read. God, I, I pray that your spirit would bring to bear those truths in our lives. And that we would, um, maybe for the first time ever today, some of us in here would would leave changed, never to be the same. God, I just, I pray that and beg that on your spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. I was a kids leader for a long time. I got to throw that in there every now and then. You can get away with that stuff in kids ministry. All right. So we are in 1 Samuel. We're going to be reading through chapter 11. We're going to get through the whole thing. If you're new here with us, this is week three of a new series through the life of the first few kings of Israel. And so we've been really loving it so far. We're calling it, We Want a King, which is exactly what the people cry out in 1 Samuel 8. They, They go on to say, we want a king so that we may be like the other nations. And if you've been with us for a while, you might remember we went through the book of Nehemiah not that long ago, and was that not the whole point of Nehemiah, was that the people of God would be a distinct, set-apart, separate people, and now here they are in 1 Samuel saying, we want to be like the other nations. We want to have what they have. The point is, when we, like they, reject God as king, we're going to see it leads to disaster. In fact, it always leads to disaster. In this series centers on the rise and fall of Israel's first three kings. We're, we're partway through looking at Saul. Then we're going to look at David and then Solomon. In this series, we're going to explore themes of power and brokenness, national division, personal failure, and cultivating a heart after God. Ultimately, our prayer for us, our community, as we go through this series, is that, that God would show and reveal to us our desperate need 
ultimately for Jesus as king. So, um, I'll just, I forgot to mention this at the front. Uh, Pastor Frank is at camp, and this isn't like tent camping in the woods kind of camp. This is like family camp kind of thing. So pray for him if you think of it. Uh, our other pastor, Tyler Thompson, is doing some of his doctoral work in Denver. So pray for him and his family as well. So, so far in our study, this is definitely just bring us up to speed here. We've seen the prophet Samuel, the writer of this text, he was a good man. But as Pastor Frank said last week, his two sons, on the other hand, were total rat thinks. Remember him saying that? And they were not fit to lead God's people. And so Samuel became the main leader, figure of Israel, and the people ended up saying, we want a king. So they already had a king. Yahweh, God, was their king. But they want a human king. Again, like the other nations. So Samuel prays to God and said, here's what the people said. Here's what they want. God says, go ahead. Give them what they want. But warn them, this is not going to be as good as they think. It's not going to give them what they want. It'll be just as bad as being led by those rat fink sons instead. But the people were so sure this was the right move, they pushed ahead anyway. Samuel complains to God, to which God says, you might remember, Samuel, go ahead and do it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting God, not Samuel. So they find Saul, tall, dark, handsome guy, head and shoulders above the rest. He's a farmer. He's got those plowing in the field kind of shoulders, ladies. You know what I'm talking about. God answers his people's cry for a king, giving them Saul. It's not the best thing for them. It's not going to give them what they want, but God gives it to them anyway. He turns his people over to a new king, Saul. But right away, I just want us to hear, there is good news for us today, church. That even though God has surrendered his people to their desires for an earthly king, that God is still a covenant-keeping God. Who we're going to see today gives a merciful kingly deliverance for his people through that new earthly king, Saul. All right, so we're caught up. Let's see what 1 Samuel 11 has to say to us. We're going to read just verses 1 and 2. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. A fun little text for us to go through this morning. The gouging out of eyes. Welcome to Redemption Arcadia. Now, this is what you get when you study the Old Testament, by the way. You get some gouging out of eyes. It's different. All right. So, the Ammonites. What can we learn about them? The Ammonites were a smaller nation than the collective people of Israel, but they were larger, especially in military force, than this people of Jabesh-Gilead. The Ammonites uh, occupied a land on the west side of the Jordan River, God's people taking up the east side for the most part. And I have a map for us. I've never had a map before. I'm really excited to have a map. Isn't that a nice map? I have a laser pointer, too. I'm going to turn it on. Last service, I used it for like two seconds. It's totally not um, necessary, but here we are. So there's Jabesh Gilead up there in the northeast. You can see under them is the, the, 
the area of Ammon. So the Ammonites charged their way up north to conquer Jabesh Gilead to try to expand their empire. Now notice a couple of these, these sites too. You're going to find Saul is at Gibeah. Okay, he's going to bring people up to Bezek. We'll learn about that place too. And then our story is going to end over here in Gilgal. Okay, so we'll leave that up for a little bit so you can kind of look at that as we talk because there'll be some helpful stuff. So the Ammonites and the Philistines are the main enemies to the people of Israel. And their borderlands were in constant battle for control, constantly. And they have besieged or completely surrounded the people of Jabesh Gilead, ready to overtake them. And so the people try to reason with them. They offer to make a treaty. The word here is literally to cut a treaty. And the Ammonites are more than happy to oblige, but they say, instead of cutting an animal for this treaty, we're going to cut your eyes out for this treaty, which is something they were known for. This was something that the Ammonites were known for. If you were conquered by them, one of the signs would have been your right eye would have been gouged out. It's sort of like a way more intense and gruesome version of the Wet Bandits from Home Alone, if you've seen that amazing movie. Right? That's what they wanted to be known for. We rob your house, but then we plug up the drains and turn the faucet on and <laughs> we leave. That's what they wanted to be known for, right? The Ammonites were known for gouging out. One's kind of worse than the other, I think. I think one's worse than the other. Minor flooding versus gouging out of eyes. But this is one of those biblical texts that has been proved true and factual by records other than the Bible. They have found ancient records that mention specifically that the people of Ammon were famous, notorious for gouging out the right eyes. The reason I say that is not so you have to hear me say gouge again, but is I just always want to take the chance to remind you, church, that we can trust God's word as truth. This is not a collection of fairy tales or religious dreaming, but a factual and trustworthy account of the early people of God. And the reason we study the Old Testament is because this is our family heritage too. We as the people of God, this is our history that we're learning about. So what can we know about this area of Jabesh Gilead? The name Jabesh, the first part of it, translates to dry. Kind of gives you a clue what that might be like there. And Gilead translates to heap of stones. So it's dry and there's a lot of piles of rocks there. Kind of sounds like Phoenix. But close to the river, it would be really beautiful. Like, like our desert, when it gets a little water, it's beautiful. And it's interesting that, notice, when they are completely surrounded, the people of Jabesh seek a peace treaty. Here's why that's interesting. They're acting as if they're free to make that kind of treaty, as if they're a sovereign nation apart from Israel. You wouldn't do that fully embracing your identity with Israel, you wouldn't act independently, which it seems like they're used to doing, acting independently, acting on their own as if they don't need the people of Israel. This is often some of the ways that we can treat the church, that we, our Arcadia, Redemption Arcadia, are largely, I'm painting with a broad brush here, we are largely a successful group of people, and that's a great thing. That's a blessing from God. But here's a temptation with our success, is that we would rely on that strength as if it came from us, as if we don't need God, 
as if we don't need his church. And that's, that's a lie. To, to say, I don't need the person sitting next to me is a lie. Not only if you believe that, would you be robbing yourself of God's comfort and support through us, through others, but you'd also be robbing us of the chance to show and give you the gifts that God's given us to love and serve you. Now, practically, what I'm saying is, what this can look like is not waiting. I say this all the time. Don't wait until you need community to start investing in it. Invest now. Be here now. Come to stuff. Be present, yes, but also seek to be known by others and to know. Wherever it's possible, be vulnerable with people. But the point is, don't wait until you have no other choice. The other thing we can know about Jabesh Gilead comes from a story in Judges 21, where the people in this area refuse to come to the help of Israel. Israel's gathering all of its forces together, and Jabesh Gilead refuses to come. They refuse to come. They acted independently then, as just like they are doing now. And back then, in Judges 21, they were greatly punished for it. But their past action helps explain what they do next. Let's read verse 3 together. The elders of Jabesh said to him, remember, they're talking to Nahash the Ammonite. They've got him surrounded. They're about to destroy him. Here's what he says to him. Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. There's so much there. I'm just going to focus on one thing, again, on that Judges 21 passage. The people are assuming that their past wrongs mean that God won't come through for them. Israel's not going to come help us. This is what I think they're assuming. If there's no one to save us, the wording there, it's so sad. It's so sad. We're going to ask around, and if there's no one to save us, all right, then, then you, can, you can take us out. They're assuming, because of their past wrongs, that Israel won't come through, that God won't come through. Now, it's amazing, too, how apparently confident the Ammonites are to even say yes to that. Right? They've got them surrounded. They're just about to destroy them. And the people say, hey, can you give us a break for seven days? And they're like, yeah, we can do that. Maybe it's because if no one comes, then we will defeat you in the midst of that hopelessness. We gave you a chance. Nobody came. Now you're done. But they're assuming from their past history of not coming to Israel's aid that Israel won't come to their aid. They view God, I'll say it a different way, they view God as a transactional God. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, right? But God gives free back scratches. Free back scratches. And he doesn't expect one back in return. That's good news. It just seems like the people of Jabesh Gilead don't know God at all. This is such a practical example and reminder for us of God's grace. There might be even those in this room who would say, maybe admitting only to themselves, I know what I've done. Why would God want me? I haven't been faithful to God. I haven't loved God like I, I know I should. Why would he love me? Why would he be faithful to me? If you're here and, and you think that, that you might have that transactional view of God, 
The reason my life isn't going well is because I've, I've not prayed hard enough. I just need to pray more. I need to do more. My hope is that you would see in this section of Scripture that our God is a covenant-keeping God. That he, like in Exodus 34, says he's a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And praise God for that. So there are these messengers sent out from Jabesh Gilead. They go all throughout the nation of Israel, traveling far and wide, letting everyone know of the threat facing Jabesh. And the word gets to Saul. And we're going to read this in a moment, but where do we find Saul? We find him in his fields, working his oxen. Remember last week, if you were here, he was just anointed as king. And now here he is working the fields. That's where we next find him. Remember that the ceremony last week that made him king, it didn't automatically unify and strengthen the people. It's this story here that we're about to read that it's Saul's response and God's provision that secures his kingship. So we're going to read a bigger section here. Let's read 4 through 7 together. 1 Samuel eleven four 4 through 7. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people. And all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what's wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him of the news of the men of Jabesh. Doesn't it seem like Saul is the last one to find out? You would, you would think if the people of Jabesh knew that Saul was king, they'd send word to him first. But it kind of seems like he's the last one. And check this out, verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. So much interesting stuff there. But what we see, the main thing that we just read was that Saul is changed now, right? If you're going to cut up your oxen, then you're, you're done farming. That's a symbol of farming days are done. He's going from a farmer to a fighter, a reaper to a redeemer, a sower. You can tell I had fun with my thesaurus this week. A sower to a soldier, a green thumb to a green beret. That was my favorite one. I had more of them too. I, I spared you a good couple of them. This is the point. Saul, for the first time, is acting like a king. Farming days are done. So he sends these messengers back out. Okay, so notice, the messengers just came from somewhere else to him. They get sent back out. We're going to see them get sent out again and again, these poor messengers running all over. I guess that's their job. But they get sent back out with a new message and a chunk of an ox, as you do, saying, come help or be destroyed, or your ox will be destroyed just like this. And verses 6 and 7 are two of just three or four times that God is even mentioned in this passage, which is interesting. It's the Spirit of God that initiates Saul's anger, and it's the fear of the Lord that motivates the people. It's not seeing this um, cut-up ox that inspires their fear. It's the fear of the Lord, which is really interesting. 
And they come and they muster to the aid of Jabesh Gilead. Let's talk about Saul's anger for a moment. If you've been a student of the Bible for long, you'll notice lots of examples of good anger and maybe bad anger. Our anger is not always necessarily a bad thing. It's very easily not a good thing, very easily. And as Christians, we must be very careful with our anger responses because they can easily hurt others. And more importantly, especially if people know we're Christians, they can misrepresent God. That's a pretty big deal. Being angry with someone can lead to hating someone. And hatred in the heart against another image bearer of God is as good as murder, right? That's how Jesus in Scripture talks about it. As far as sin is concerned, hating another image bearer of God is as good as murder in the heart. However, there are healthy and good uses for anger, like Jesus in the temple, like Saul here. It motivates, it rallies. Anger, in fact, is sometimes the exact right response, God himself is angry at times, but the Bible, again, describes him in Exodus 34 as being slow to anger, not quick to anger. And with that comes abounding in steadfast love, which is good news for us. As Bible commentator Mary J. Evans says, God's anger, unlike his love, is limited. God's anger, unlike his love, is limited. Praise God. And the people respond in verse 7, the really interesting language here, coming as one man. Not necessarily, again, because of fear of Saul, but as verse 7 implies, fear of the Lord. God is using Saul right here to accomplish his mission of uniting and protecting his people. One last thought about this section is there are very clear alliterations here by Samuel to another story in Judges 19. Judges 19. If you were to read Judges 19 and 20, you would see some of the exact same language here. There's a cutting into 12 pieces, distributing. The people rally. The fear of the Lord comes, and they come as one man. That story in Judges 19, though, is one of those really challenging stories to read. It's hard to understand. Not because of the wording, necessarily, but the content is very, very dark, very evil. It's, it's really rough. But the beats of that story are unremarkable, uh, unmistakably the same as here. So why? Why in this story where Saul's about to have a great military victory, would there be tie-ins, or as Tim Mackey, the Bible scholar, would say, hyperlinks to another story in Judges? Why? Well, how are they related? I spent a good time this last week trying to discern why, and here's what I found. First, in the ancient Hebrew Bible, it's important to remember that the book of Samuel immediately follows that of Judges. That's the first important clue. In your work, if you're a Jewish scholar, studying, memorizing Judges, you would move into Samuel right after that, and Judges would be fresh in your mind, and now you'd start to read this story of Israel's first king, Saul. Now, piecing that together with what we're going to learn about next week, just two chapters later that Saul fails in an, an irredeemable way, Saul is going to go towards that and not towards faithfulness to God. 
we begin to understand the connections. Here's what's happening. The author Samuel is trying to hint or foreshadow that although things are going well for Saul, he is eventually going to go the way of the judges. The whole story there, painting with a broad brush, the story of the judges is not a positive one in the history of Israel. There are far more unfaithful judges to God than there were faithful. So, although we're about to see God, uh, Samuel do this mighty work for God, we're gonna, we begin to get a sense that he may go the way of the judges before him, being unfaithful to God, leading people astray. But for now, it's just a foreshadowing, just a, an, an ominous sort of cloud over Saul's story here. But right now, everything's easy breezy. Let's keep going. The people are gathered together. Saul musters them at Bezek, which is about 17 miles or a day's journey from Jabesh Gilead. So help is on the way. Let's read verses uh, 8 through 10. When he, that's Saul, mustered the people at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000. And the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, they're sending the messengers back out again, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Sort of an understatement there. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said to, uh, this is to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Just imagine the relief of the people to hear that help is on the way. Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So that'd be 6 a.m. for us. Deliverance would come. Now the language that they send back to Nahash, that's interesting because you would think if you just heard help is on the way, that you would say to Nahash, hey, count your, count your days, dude. You're, you're about to be done. But what they say to him is, hey, tomorrow we're going to come out to you. Now the language most commentators think is deliberately ambiguous here because you could also interpret that we will come out to you. What the ESV says is we will um, give ourselves up to you. You could even say, we'll march out to you. So they're kind of given this little, little nod to what's about to happen. They think that the reason they might do that is it would put the Ammonites at ease to hear, okay, tomorrow it's all done, we're coming out to you, and the Ammonites would sort of rest on that last day, sort of setting them up for what's next. Let's read verse 11. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, sort of a military strategy there, and they came into the midst of the camp, in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Just complete and utter devastation of the people of Ammon. One of the consistent things we see in the Bible is that God always opposes injustice. Always. Consistently we see God represented that way. And if that deliverance seems or feels kind of harsh to you, remember that the Ammonites gave no option for a peaceful solution. When Jabesh Gilead tried to make a, a, a peace treaty, they said, yeah, we'll do a treaty. We'll gouge out your eyes. The only prevention to their siege was all-out war. And this is something, this deliverance that God gave through Saul was something that the people of Jabesh Gilead never forgot. Never forgot. There is a fascinating story. You could just jump ahead 
and read in 1 Samuel 31, after Saul dies, I know that's a spoiler, but after Saul dies, the people of Jabesh-Gilead are the ones who come down and care for his body. They always remembered this Saul and this victory here. All right, last section here, 12 through 15. Let's read that together. Then the people said to Samuel, Samuel shows up here, and says, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Notice too the real and raw emotion there, that the people wept greatly, as it said earlier, and here they rejoice greatly. That is one of the fruits of God's deliverance is uh, he turns our tears into dancing. Remember in 1 Samuel 10, 27, it had this group of men who after Saul was anointed king, they doubted Saul. They said, who is this guy? Is he going to deliver us? I don't think so. And they kind of snubbed him as king. Well, after Saul's great victory, the people say, yeah, who were those guys that were doubting? Let's rally them up. Let's take care of them. But Saul protects the doubters. Why? Why would he do that? I think the answer is twofold. First, Remember what God told Samuel when the people wanted a king, that they really were not rejecting Samuel, but rejecting God. I think the first reason is that Saul knew when those men rejected Saul and his ability to, to deliver, really they were rejecting God. And God's the one that's proved them right today. Second, although Saul knew that the victory here was not his own, God's grace was shown, and I think Saul recognized that this wasn't Saul's victory, this was God's. God's grace in protecting his people despite, remember, they just rejected God, but here he is protecting them. That grace shown ought to result in the same grace being shown to others. Christians, this is why we love, because God first loved. This is why we forgive, we extend grace to others. Why? Because when you recognize the depth of the love that God's shown you, the grace that God has shown you, and the forgiveness God has given, you can't help but share that with others. If you're struggling to forgive someone, do some work to recognize the depth that God has forgiven you. And I bet what you'll find is an eagerness to forgive that other person that wronged you. Saul forgives the doubters, and then Samuel leads the after party over to Gilgal. This is fascinating too. Gilgal is from Joshua 4 is when it's mentioned. Joshua makes this ring of 12 stones as a reminder to be passed down of the work that God did in delivering his people across the Jordan River. So they made this sort of monument in Gilgal. And I just would encourage you to read Joshua 4 sometime this week. It's, it's fascinating to get the context of why to this narrative. But it's clear that in the time since Joshua... Gilgal, that name even means circle of stones, that Gilgal had become something of a sacred place for making commitments before God, especially of new beginnings. 
So remember that Saul was anointed king, but here he's finally enthroned as Israel's king. There's a new thing happening. Let's go to Gilgal. Now, if this is all we had of Saul's life, he would go down as one of the great kings of Israel. This, this makes him look really good. But we're going to see next week in 1 Samuel 13, just two chapters later, his failure as a leader. The story of Saul was never meant to point us to him, but to God. And that's rich throughout this text. Two final things. First, you've heard me say this throughout the sermon. God, our God, is a God of covenant faithfulness. Meaning he's committed to you despite what you do. And that's good news. Look at the people's final response in this story and and notice the irony. In verse 13, the people say, and Saul says, God is the one that delivered us. Wow, God did this thing. And then verse 15, and so they made Saul king. You notice the irony there? Wow, God did this thing. Let's, let's make Saul king. To, you, to phrase it the way Zach Hines, our pastoral resident, would say, is that this victory turned, the victory of God, turned people towards Saul and not God. And yet still, God is a covenant-keeping God. What would the story have been like if the people would have said, you know what, Samuel, Saul, you guys are right. God is a pretty great king. We're going to, Samuel, you're great, but we're going to put you aside, and we're going to have Yahweh as our king instead. How would this story have been different? He's committed to you despite what you do. He's all in. For those who who have acknowledged Jesus as king and seek to obey him as Lord, the good news is we are saved, praise God, and there's nothing that can take you away from that. God is a covenant-keeping God, so be encouraged. Two, look at the spirit of God throughout this text. First, he was the catalyst of God's salvation for his people. Remember, he rushed on Saul. He's the one who motivated the people to action. It wasn't the cut-up ox that motivated them. It was the fear of the Lord. The spirit is at work there. And the spirit is ultimately the one who's credited with bringing this great military victory, this deliverance, this salvation is from the spirit of God. And here's the point. The spirit that saves in this story is the same spirit at work in us today, this morning, right now. Our God is a God that saves physically at times, but always and eternally bringing God's saving and eternal grace to bear on the lives of sinners. Again, I mean, we, uh, Steve announced this this morning. Every time we do baptisms, which we're doing on the 31st, we get to see God's saving work in the church. That's why it's always so sweet. And maybe you're here and you've never been baptized. I just would reiterate what Steve said, that it's a biblical command. It's an ordinance established by Jesus, and we should obey that. Maybe you're a newer Christian. You don't even know what baptism is. Come talk to one of us. Pastors, we would love to pray with you and talk you through that. But church, be assured, God is still saving today. God is still delivering today. Don't be discouraged by what you see in the news. Don't be tossed to and fro, back and forth by those things. But stand firm, church, on the rock of Jesus Christ, the only way to God, the only source of life and truth. He's a saving God then, and he's a saving God today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story. 
that happened so long ago but has so many rich things to teach us about who we are and who you are. God, maybe many of us in here have heard that you are a promise-keeping God, a covenant-keeping God before, but that can be a hard thing to live out. That can be a hard thing to believe more deeply, and we need your spirit to bear that truth in us, so we pray that you would do that. We pray for those here this morning who, who have wandered away from you, God, and maybe are here this morning. They don't even know why they're here, but they're here. You did something to orchestrate them to be here, and I just pray for those individuals that your spirit would do what you do in them, that you'd continue the work that you're already doing, and that we one day would get to celebrate with them in the new life, the new birth, uh, and maybe even baptisms on the 31st. God, I pray for those of us who've been walking with you, Jesus, for a while, who just need this reminder that you've got this, you are in control, you are saving still. God, we thank you that your spirit's work in us makes us, sanctifies us into your image, Jesus, over time, and it happens through our faithfulness to come to church, to love others, to serve, to obey you. It just happens slowly, often much more slowly than we'd prefer, but we thank you that your spirit is at work in us who are saved and that we are being renewed day by day. We thank you for that work. And God, as we take communion now, we remember um, your body that was broken. God, you were crushed like the bread that we, we, that we'll hold in our hands, God, that bread has been crushed, beaten down, just like your body was, Lord. As we take the juice or the wine this morning, we're reminded of your blood that was poured out for us. God, we pray that you'd bring to mind as we take communion the many sins that we uh, willingly joined in this week. Pray that you'd bring those to mind, God, and that we would confess those things, repent of those things, and again, turn from them, from those things that we think give us life, but we found them to be empty. We turn from those and we turn back to you, God. You're the only source of life. So we pray, Lord, that um, you would be glorified in us this week and that you would um, continue to do what you do, Spirit, in us. In Jesus' name, amen. But we respond as a church every week in a few different ways. We take communion as I prayed. And if you're new here, what we do is we come up the center aisle, we take communion, go back to our seat, and then we take it when we're ready. We sing during this time because we can and because God is good. So we sing, we praise his name. If you came prepared to give, you can do that now. There are giving boxes in the back of the sanctuary there by the lobby. And we also pray during this time. So there will be uh, pastors and deacons and leaders standing on the wings here to the side, ready to pray for you. It can be a big thing. It can be a little thing. We just believe that prayer is powerful. And these are people who are leaders in our church who love God and want to pray with you. So I hope you'll take us up on that also. So in this time right now, let's get ready. Let's take communion and let's respond.
Amen. Well, it's great to worship with you guys. Thank you for being here. Uh, we love you. And as we go into the week, I want to pray something over us. Uh, so receive this, uh, and then we'll go back into the week, uh, having been formed by God's word again, as we do this every week. This comes from 2 Thessalonians. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.